I'm just reminded I'd promised to take my young ward, Dick Grayson, fishing, if you'll excuse me. There's the problem. Better let us handle this. I don't know who he is behind that mask of his, but I do know when we need him. We need him now. Beth, Bam, Pow, let's take a trip down to the Batcave for Batman Land. Let's go! Our weekly discussion of the 1966 Batman TV show. Each week we're joined by a guest, where we discuss the Batman episodes there this week on SBS Vice Land. Now, when I'm not patrolling the streets at night, I'm Dan Barrett, billionaire playboy and the digital editor at SBS. I'm joined here, as I have been the last couple of weeks, by my boy wonder, Mr. Nick Vecine. Um, Sorry, Master Nick Vecine. Yeah, I'm going to... Um it's becoming kind of a thing, but uh, I'm going to renew my objection to being the boy wonder. Well, you say that with your voice, but with your eyes. Oh, they light up, yeah. yeah. And why do you keep wearing the little green shorts in? Why, uh, That's a strictly a comfort issue. <laughs> now, we are very excited to have in the Batman Land Cave studios, Nicholas Scott, DC Comics artist. Um, also, you've recently had your own series for Image, as I recall, Black Magic, which is very good. People should check this book out. Nicholas Scott, how are you doing? I'm doing really good, thanks. Thanks for having me in. Nick, have you sampled much of Nicholas' work before? Nicholas' work comes after my heavy comic book phase, which would have been in the 90s. Yeah, it's all Jim Lee focused. Yeah, so I was a big Batman, X-Men, Spider-Man, but yeah, early, mid-90s, and then I went to college and kind of... right. Grew up. Changed. <laughs> Found girls. Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, well. I mean, they were around, obviously. <laughs> yeah, I didn't, yeah. Uh, like, no, they wanted nothing to do with me, but yeah. Now, Nicole, I'm interested in your perspective on this, because when I look at when you sort of came to prominence, I guess, as a comic book artist, it was during a time where I think it was really strongly encouraged and supported that lots of girls were coming to read comics as well. And what I thought was interesting about you coming around at the time is your art style is very, very clean. It's a very simple way for your um, sort of novice comics readers to really sort of understand panel layouts and learn the crafts of reading a comic. Because comics sure. are a bit hard to read from the outset. Uh, I've always just had that in my mind, but do you think, like, is that fair to Yeah, sort of, yeah, yeah. look, I, you know, I, I wasn't a big comics reader as I was growing up because I just, there wasn't quite the same culture here as there is in America, obviously. Mm. And whenever I would sort of come across a comic book here, I was overwhelmed. I didn't <laughs> know how to read it. I didn't know how to look at it. I was confused by yeah, all reading, the other characters. You're reading left to right like a normal book, a Western book. Yeah, but at but the same time, still... the panels, you have to know where to track the dialogue and all this yeah, kind of... And yeah, and um, until you've sort of built up a basic awareness and understanding of this is sequential art form, it can be a little sort of overwhelming for your eyes and for your brain. And for me, you know, I grew up loving superheroes, but it was because of TV shows like Batman 66 and Wonder Woman and the Superman films and the Super Friends cartoon and, you know, Shazam and Isis Hour. And so when I would sort of see any of these characters in a comic book, especially when I would see them together, you know, I'd see Superman, Batman and Wonder Woman on a cover of a comic book together called Justice League and I think, why isn't it called Super Friends? And, <laughs> but they would be surrounded by all these other people that were like Black Canary and Green Arrow and I'd be like, who the hell were all these people? And I found that a little disconcerting. But comics themselves can be a little intimidating, but now that I understand them beautifully, they're one of the most liberating sort of storytelling art forms because you can do anything on no budget, you know? It's like reading a book where you create quite a bit of the story in your own mind as you're reading it. With a comic, you're giving the reader more information in terms of visual stimulation, but the atmosphere and the energy is something that you create in your head. 
And that can be quite sort of intoxicating and really fascinating. And when I was coming into the industry, there were a few women working in the sort of mainstream. Mainstream I sort of refer to as like the superhero companies, which is essentially Marvel and DC. There were a couple of women working in the industry. Not that many artists though, more writers. Yeah, there were, uh, well, Amanda Connor is an artist. I suppose that's, yeah. And Gail Simone is a writer and they were sort of the two big names. Like there had been women previously. Um, like through the 90s, obviously. I grew up reading a lot of Louise Simonson. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, Jill Thompson and Trina Robbins and such. You know, there had been women around, but they were very much the anomaly. And as I was coming in, it was kind of the whole sort of gig genre was evolving in a big way. This is sort of early 2000s and... Comic-Cons were sort of becoming a little further reaching and a little broader and the sort of entry points for female geeks was kind of expanding with things like cosplay starting to sort of take over and anime and manga sort of becoming a little more mainstream. And sort of certainly over the first decade of the 2000s, the whole geek industry and its fandom changed. And a lot of that had to do with, you know, sort of social media forums turning into actual social media. And it just sort of galvanised all of these sort of girls who are on their own reading books or playing video games and they just sort of found each other. Yeah, there's a lot more visibility. Yeah, and in that visibility came a sort of community. And through that and, you know, the the bigger companies' awareness of the fact that they've actually got these large audiences that they haven't really catered to or tapped into, the way these sort of geek industries work has evolved really radically in the last 10 years to the point where now, from what I understand the sort of gender ratio at like a Comic-Con is generally sort of more than 50% women because there's a lot more sort of accessibility and avenues. And as these sort of younger generations are coming through, you know, there are sort of people in their 20s now who feel like they've grown up on superhero films Mm. because there's been 10 years worth of Marvel films now. You know, they're sort of, they're really well educated on the things that they love. You have an acting background, yeah. right? You're an actress and you came to superheroes through the movies and TV shows. How did you make the switch to well, doing came, comics? It came from acting not really taking off in a satisfying way. Um, I spent quite a bit of the mid-90s doing lots of alcohol advertising, <laughs> which isn't really acting. Did you have to act drunk a lot? No, I had to act like I was having a great time. I was getting paid pretty well, but, you know, it's still not acting. And, you know, after sort of 10 years of pursuing it in my late 20s, I just felt I needed to put the whole career ambition in a box and find something else to do. Mm-hmm. And I come from a creative family and drawing and sewing are things that I grew up being pretty good at. I just sort of started investigating what I could do with those talents that had sort of developed some skill level. And there was just sort of nothing that was really exciting me in a way that I felt like I could do that and be really satisfied in the doing and not want to kill myself on a regular basis. And at one point I was just thinking, if I had to draw the same thing all day, every day, what do I want to draw? And straight off the bat, I was like, oh man, I wish I could just draw Wonder Woman because Wonder Woman is my favorite character. She is the first superhero I ever saw thanks to the Linda Carter TV series. And I'd never quite grown out of that and I'd sort of always thought of that Linda Carter version of Wonder Woman as my patron saint, you know, I'd sort of pray pray to Wonder Woman, what should I do? And so when that thought occurred to me straight away, I was like, oh my God, that's a real job that someone has right now 
drawing Wonder Woman comic books. I don't know anything about comic books, but that's a job that I want because that would make me really happy. I'm going to do that. And that's where the original thought came from, which was immediately followed by, I don't know anything about comic books. I better start learning. And within 20 minutes, I was in a comic book store just buying lots of comics and from that point, asking lots of questions. That's fantastic. Now, we are going to talk about Batman in a moment, but you did mention your love of Wonder Woman. Yeah. And in the last two years, I want to say, you've actually had the opportunity to be on the main Wonder Woman title, working with Greg Rucker. How was it fulfilling the dream? Pretty extraordinary because for the length of my career, you know, every time I do a, a comics industry interview, you know, you're always asked, what's your dream job? Or on any panel, someone will ask, what's your dream job? And I've always said doing a Wonder Woman origin story. And as the years have gone by, Greg and I met each other over 10 years ago. And as the years have gone by, it's kind of evolved into doing a Wonder Woman origin story with Greg Rucker. That would be my dream job. But he left DC Comics about seven years ago, kind of, you know, torching his bridges as he left the company. So that, you know, that sort of remained a very sort of abstract idea that, you know, we thought would never happen. But he and I have talked about Wonder Woman ad nauseum. Every time we sort of see each other, we'll, we'll just sort of discuss Diana. And Greg Rucker did have an amazing run on the book. In and the, he, yeah, he had, yeah, that's kind of how we met in the first place was that he saw my work and tried to get me on the book when he was on his original run, you know, 13, 14 years ago. And at the time I was just still a little bit too green. It was about a year before I started working for the company. And I think them putting me on their flagship uh, superheroine character was just a bit too much of a gamble for them at the time. And so, you know, that was why we started talking about Wonder Woman and because we were so on the same page about how we understood her and she's his favourite character as well. We we would kind of find ourselves talking about her all the time. And then completely out of nowhere last year for her 75th anniversary, the company came to Greg and said, would you and Nicola be interested in doing Wonder Woman, and he said, yes, only if we can do an origin story because it's been 30 years and Superman and Batman get their origin stories retold every five minutes. And she's meant to be part of what DC calls their trinity, their, you know, high trinity of characters. Their big three, Wonder Woman, Batman, Superman. Yeah, and it's about time that she had a modern retelling. And after making sure everything was in writing, he said, yes. So we all of a sudden got to work on our favourite character together in the most ideal circumstances because the company was so on board for sort of facilitating what we wanted to do. You know, that was kind of why they came to us in the first place because they knew that they don't always have a great track record of understanding how to deal with Wonder Woman, but they knew that they could trust Greg to do the right thing at a time when there was going to be quite a lot of focus on the character because of her 75th anniversary, because the film that just came out this year, it was not the time to mess it up. And we were really lucky that they came to us. And so far, so good. You know, the fans have been pretty happy. I've come to Wonder Woman kind of late in terms of comics. Um, and But I grew up reading comics and the women are drawn obviously, in a very suggestive, for a, like a teenage boy. Well, right? Nick, you were saying that you were into comics in the 90s. Yes. That was kind of when that really got out of control. Yeah, and I've gone back and looked at some of those comics, and it's crazy. It's crazy. I wouldn't want a child no. to be looking at, those, at <laughs> that art, artwork. It's almost pornography. It is. Yeah. 
So not that I've ever seen Wonder Woman drawn this way in particular. Ooh, it's happened. But it, yes, there is a sexy version. And I recently I've, I've read uh, more of them thanks to Dan over there. And there's different versions. There's strong, there's a little more live. There's, but my question is, is that outfit the best kind of fighting outfit she could be wearing? Right. Well, the original reason for that outfit when she was created in 1941 was intended as female empowerment because it was just in your face, take it. You know, you just have to take it. And, you know, superhero costumes being what they were in the 30s and 40s, you know, Superman was really the first modern superhero. Before then, they were all sort of pulp heroes. Superman was the first one that came along that was just a total other kind of personality uh, and power level. And those costumes were all kind of flash. And of course, Wonder Woman sort of fits into that. And I love that it came with this sort of quite socially progressive agenda. And it kind of stayed that way without it being scandalous. It was just sort of incidental until the 90s when, you know, the proportions of the women got a little weird and their body language got really uncomfortable and everyone's costume got smaller and smaller and smaller. But hers was already kind of small. Well, hers showed a lot of skin, but it's also she comes from an island of women where I don't think misogyny is something that's occurred to them at all. Right. And it's essentially a Mediterranean island where, you know, they're probably naked quite a bit. I think she's pretty comfortable in her own skin. I kind of like where the outfit is now, certainly in the comics. It had been sort of veering towards what it is now in the film, where it's a little more armour-related. Yeah. But, you know, she's a demigod, you know. How much protection does she actually need? Yeah, right. You know, ba- Batman in spandex doesn't make a lot of sense. He needs. Yeah. He actually needs armour. Superman doesn't need armour, but, you know, he's got his alien bodysuit on. Wonder Woman just doesn't need armour, you know. And right. if she does need to shield herself in any way, she's got a couple of bracelets on. She's got yeah. some great accessories. <laughs> I don't mind it at all. And I I feel like there's something quite strong in the messaging of this woman who is a sexual being but isn't sexualizing herself in any way, being quite comfortable just getting around in a basic bit of body armour. Now, one hero who doesn't need body armour at all was Adam West, TV's Batman. (laughs) 100% pure West. And I I thought this is probably the time in the show where we should actually talk about Batman. Now, we were going to discuss two episodes that aired this week on SBS Viceland. We got the episodes Instant Freeze. It initially aired on the 2nd of February, 1966. And Rats Like Cheese, which is the 3rd of February, 1966. Now, this episode, I was really surprised by because... There's that narrative around the 60s Batman TV show where they say that the kids watching it thought it was an action-adventure show, whereas the adults thought that it was actually more of a comedy. And the last, you know, what I have in episode six now, have actually felt like a comedy show. This one was an action-adventure show. So, I mean, it opened with a thrilling sequence, which I was actually genuinely excited by. So you got like Mr. Freeze hanging out the back of a van, sort of spraying the ice of that cop coming along on the bike afterwards. Like, it seemed like actual, you know, theatrical production as opposed to what we've seen so far. There was more shooting. There was more um, freezing people. And, um, yeah, there did seem to be more action in this episode. More potential death. Yeah. there was a great, of course, there wasn't any. <laughs> There was a great trip around the fake city backlot. 
which I thought was just fantastic. Yeah, go that Warner Brothers back lot. It really got some work. Yeah. Yes, I love how Gotham City, which is essentially, you know, meant to be New York City, is all like three-story buildings. (laughs) 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 Except for when you see that stock footage of a tall building. Yeah. Um, Um, Nick, usually we kick things off with a synopsis as to what's going on here. Yes, please. So in these two episodes, uh, Batman is taunted by a vengeful, he's out for revenge, more so than the other uh, villains have been up to this point, uh, called Mr. Freeze, who he's got a personal score to settle. It seems that Batman is responsible for the spilled beaker of antifreeze that wreaked havoc with Mr. Freeze's core temperature, and so now he has to live in constant cold. Poor devil. Forced to live in an air-conditioned suit that keeps his body temperature down to 50 degrees below zero. Really horrible, bitter cold. And he concocts an elaborate scheme to steal some diamonds. Ah, look at that. The most valuable diamond in the world. As a ruse to put the Batman on ice permanently. Yeah, I was fascinated to find out this is the first appearance of Mr. Freeze as a character. There was a comics character prior to this called Mr. Zero. Right. And so they retrofitted the comics to match the TV show with this. Apparently, what we now understand to be Mr. Freeze is from this show. Yeah. yeah. And an animated series later on. It's kind of fun when that happens. When, it's weird. Yeah. The character Harley Quinn, which is like one of the most popular characters now, came from the Batman animated series. So it's kind of fun when whoever is creating these sort of alter worlds, these adaptation worlds, that they're given this freedom to create these new characters that, you know, the the source material then says, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. We're going to use that. Yeah, it's so interesting that it gets absorbed into the mainstream and now it's a, just a, as if this character has always existed, as if yeah. Joker always had this girlfriend. Absolutely. Now, did you notice right at the beginning we're at a ice skating rink and there's some teenagers that come out oh, screaming? Oh, I noticed. And, you know, Sun Coop melted the ice rink. With a flamethrower, yes. It feels very 60s as that's happening. Did you notice the actress that was up yes, front there? Yes, I was thrilled. Yeah. I didn't who? Terry Gar. No way. Oh, my God, I love Terry Gar. <laughs> it's amazing. I was beside myself. Uh, <laughs> I, I love her and, and I loved that she was just screaming and... Well, I've been waiting for like a contemporary actress. I mean, Terry Gar's not as contemporary as, you know, maybe she was 10, 15 She's years ago. She's a big deal. She's a big deal. But I've been waiting for one of those stars to come along and then suddenly oh, Terry Gar comes running out of the ice skating rink. Yeah. Certainly in the late 70s and into the 80s, she was a big deal. Yeah. yeah. So many classic um, movies, some huge, some of my favorites, yeah. Young Frankenstein. So well, that's good. pretty fun sort of getting to see her in an extras role sort of when she was young. Yeah, definitely one of the first roles she had. But also Mr. Freeze is played by... A, a big deal himself, George Sanders, who is in All About Eve. Yeah. He's great in that. He's the voice of Shere Khan in The Jungle Book, which is pretty cool. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. I will toy with him like cat with mouse. I will lure him right to the scene of the crime. Who's a better Mr. Freeze, uh, George Sanders or um, Arnold Schwarzenegger? Oh, God. <laughs> Who's a better governor of California? <laughs> <laughs> I quite like the sort of later versions of Mr. Freeze in the show where they kind of comics him up even more, where they sort of gave him all that sort of body makeup as well. They took the helmet off, which I think was a shame because I love the helmet, but they really indulged in the comics look of him in the second and third season. Yeah. I liked in the 90s cartoon where they gave him a romantic backstory where, yeah. yeah. 
And like, that was a lot of fun. Whereas in this, he's more of just a everyday, like 50 year old man of whom just seems to have this amazing technology based off some sort of incident he had, which Batman was responsible for. With a heavy German accent. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And you think that he, with all that sort of technology knowledge that he'd be a professor, but he's just a Mr. Freeze. Tell him yourself, Dr. Schimmel. Alias, Mr. Freeze. There's something that really threw me in this episode, and I think I just want to discuss it up front. Bruce Wayne, at the beginning of this episode, he's just a little bit gross. So he's there, he's hanging out with some sports stars, the members of the Gotham Eagles, which are a local football team. I think they're a baseball, baseball team. team. Sorry, it's been a while. So Bruce is there, and I don't know if he's just trying to sort of masculine himself up a little bit, which, I mean, there's no more masculine man than Bruce Wayne, as portrayed no. by Adam West. But he's giving a go anyway. And he makes some excuse when he's leaving. It's not that Bruce and Dick need to go on a fishing trip somewhere, but rather Bruce is saying that he's got a date that he has to go yeah. on. And it gets a little bit gross because there's a suggestion that, oh, you don't want to keep a lady waiting. And he's like, no, it's her little sister. <sighs> like, Ew. come on. Locker room so, talk. Such a creep. <laughs> The implication seemed to me that they were going on some kind of creepy double date. I guess an adult woman and then a teenager for the kid, for, for Robin. Is that the it's way just, it was going? It just seems so yeah. weird. Oh. Have I just read it wrong? Is that what was going on? That's how I read it. And then, but then, sorry, famous baseball players, I got a creepy double date with my ward here. <laughs> we're going to go try to cozy up to some ladies. This is crazy. Seems I have an impatient date waiting, gentlemen. Well, what are you waiting for? It seems weird because this show is so heavily laid in gay innuendo that suddenly this happens. It becomes like excessively hetero. Yeah, I find myself missing the um, <laughs> the fishing trip yeah. <laughs> excuse. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think it's the first time that we've been given an origin story for any of the villains. So every villain's yeah, just kind right. of been there where we find out here that Batman's responsible in some way for... Uh, I think he knocks some instant freeze onto him as part of a yeah. fight in the laboratory. It was an accident, Batman. You didn't mean to knock that beaker of instant freeze on him during the fight in his laboratory. I'm not sure what an instant freeze is exactly. <laughs> it's a bat technology. <laughs> yeah, it gave it a little bit more emotional heft because he's a he's quite sad. He's a sad man, right? He's got to live in that um, icebox. Yeah, and it sort of brings... Batman into a sense of responsibility for, you know, one of these bad guys that he's sort of tasked with reining in. So I feel it's my duty not only to catch him, but with all the medical know-how at our command to help that sorry creature back to a normal way of life. Noble sentiments, Batman. And in the comics, well, at least eventually, a lot is made out of how Batman is responsible for the creation of a lot of these villains. And if without Batman, maybe we wouldn't have these villains. Yeah. Now, it's interesting that this is an laboratory thing because usually Spider-Man is the one responsible for these terrible laboratory accidents mm. that create the bad guys. Whereas I think it's the only one where we've directly heard about Batman influencing the creation as opposed to inspiring in the way that we hear through the lore later with the Joker and those sort of characters. Yes, there's been versions of the Joker where Batman's responsible. There's probably versions of quite a few characters where Batman's sort of a key ingredient in the creation of who these bad guys become. I don't know if this has been mentioned before, but why is the red phone under a um, cake lid? I'll call him, sir. Uh, <laughs> you as an expert would know. God only knows, but I was really distracted by the fact that the cord for the red phone sticks out under the cake lid so it doesn't <laughs> sit flush on the thing. I was like, oh, that I bet they weird. fixed that somewhere along the way because that's really distracting. And it always cracks me up that 
there is a matching red phone in Bruce Wayne's office. Yeah. In his home. It's like, does no one ever go into that room? What's the <laughs> point of hiding the bat poles if they're not hiding the phone that's just sitting there? That has always been a little crazy to me, along that's with true. what you guys were talking about on a previous episode where it's Alfred answering the phone at Stately Way Manor or for Bruce Wayne, that it's the same yeah, With the same, same voice. voice. You never, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Do you think maybe just all rich people around Gotham have been equipped with one of these phones? Oh, yeah, that's like a rich guy phone. Yeah. Oh, maybe. No, it's a very fancy phone, so it's a rich guy phone. Maybe. There is some uh, stark attention to detail in these in this show. Um, there's a moment where the bad guy is serving um, the sherry to um, Mr. Freeze. Oh, yeah. And he, his hands clearly go right into the cold zone. Oh, yeah. No problem. And none of that was freezing itself. No. Like he, he, yeah, he said he, he, would, he could chill it in his hand, and it's like, <laughs> isn't it freezing in the <laughs> space that you're in? I did find uh, some of those scenes in his lair where he's sort of creating warm spots for everyone to move. You forgot to turn on my hot pass, sir. Oh, Doomkopf. There, nice warm 7 to 6 degree temperature from kitchen to table. I understand at the time that it was, you know, quite interesting technology and great special effects. But I found that just sort of laboured on a little bit. It was like, okay, this is cute, but uh, let's let's get clicking with the next bit of the story. Are the special effects really that amazing? It's just a bit of cellophane over a light. Uh, well, no, they're amazing <laughs> at all, but I think they were pretty impressed with themselves because otherwise, you know, why would they have laboured over it so much? And obviously it becomes the device in the second episode, but it was still super laboursome. It's a great device, though, for kids wanting to play as though they're Mr. Freeze and you sort of jump between the cold spots and the hot spots. Yeah. 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 That's pretty cute. Kind of like that. I was fascinated by the henchmen. So I love the names they give the henchmen every week. Yeah. And I was particularly interested in this one. We've got three guys. There's Nippy, Chill, and Mo. Who's Mo? What does exactly. that mean? That's it. So, like, do you think Mo's feeling hard done by? Is he maybe just a ring-in? Like, he has to stick around for a few weeks before he gets, like, a chillier name? Well, maybe they're all just versions of the Three Stooges because, you know, <laughs> every bad guy in every episode has three goons in black pants and matching skitties. Yeah. And do you think they're ideologically tied to the particular villain that they've found? So, Nippy and Chill, do you think they're just really into the whole cold motif? Like, could they one week suddenly become, like, the I Penguins think, guys? And yeah, I yeah. think they all come from the same, you know... Um, a, um, temp agency? Temp agency, yeah. It's a goon temp agency, and, you know, they just get assigned nicknames. These um, days, do you think it's, like, a fancy app for it? You would hope oh, so. Oh, for sure, yeah. yeah. Let's, let's all log on. <laughs> Did anybody else think about um, Joe Chill when that bad guy's name was Chill? Oh, the Mr. man that Chill? killed the... I did not, because I don't know that Joe Chill came into significance until quite a bit later. The, in the 80s comics. or something, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, winding up, like, did we like the episode? I liked the added action. I liked the um, emotional depth that we got with the backstory. I'm uh, less and less impressed with these cops. I mean, they do <laughs> nothing. Are we talking about, like, honorary cop Chief O'Hara? Chief, yeah, he is terrible. Commissioners can answer the phone. That's about it. And who were the other two chiefs hanging around? You know, they get rid of them by later episodes. Silent chiefs of police or or sort of high-ranking police chaps. They're all useless. They're just there to say, we're not up to the job. Yeah, call Batman and we don't know what to do. Yeah, just call Batman. (laughs) Well, again, I don't think that any of these guys are actually cops. I think this is just the situation where he's being humoured by Commissioner Gordon. I mean, particularly Chief O'Hara, but some of those other chiefs in the room as well. I was impressed when they went to the Gotham Hotel, the Gotham City Hotel, to save the princess. Princess 
Americana from, you know, <laughs> fake city Europea. Yeah, with no Italian accents. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> well, no, because didn't the voiceover say that she was from Jersey or something? Is it a Grace Kelly situation? I'm where, sure it is yeah. because was a bit of a trope in fiction. I can remember yeah. an episode of Wonder Woman. I'm pretty sure there was an episode of Charlie's Angels where there is, like, American princess of fake European country. <laughs> I was amused by how flirty she was with all these other people. And I'm like, where's your husband, lady? <laughs> and, and, what you know, what do your country people of, you know, your now adopted country think of you just flirting with American men? That kind of amused me. But uh, when they sort of broke in to save her, I was a little impressed that those curtains were absolutely on fire and that, and that was Adam West patting them down, you know, sort of... That, it made me think that his satin cape is definitely not synthetic because he would have gone up like a matchbook. Fire under control after the robin. Sorry about this, Your Highness. I, I thought a lot about Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> and how his, a lot of his lines were very similar to the lines here. First I toy, then I destroy. That's not really cold-themed, but this is the way the ice cube crumbles, a lot of that kind of thing. How many times must I tell you, no ordinary guns. I want they should be frozen stiff. That was kind of the the Joel Schumacher agenda when he took over the Batman, the the sort of 80s and 90s Batman franchise, was he he grew up on the 60s TV series and he wanted to make it more like the 60s TV series. Did you think it was successful? Uh, I don't think anyone thinks it was successful. <laughs> I actually don't mind the Val Kilmer Batman film. It was kind of fun. There were a couple of good songs that came out of it. Um, oh, Kiss from a Rose. Kiss from Isn't a Rose. And there was also the U2 song. Hold Me, Throw Me, Kiss Me, Kill yeah, Me. Yeah, that one. Oh, and uh, Method Man has a Riddler song on there that's not that terrible. Right. Oh, there's a Flame Lips yeah. track on there as well. Is there? Yeah. And the film itself, I was quite amused by. I found it sort of quite fun. But the Batman and Robin was just appalling. I think the only thing that I genuinely liked about that film was Poison Ivy. She was fun. She was fun. You know, her her look was fun. I thought Arnold's look was fun and he was obviously well cast. Uh, I like Jim Carrey in in, uh, Batman Forever. I think he's, he can sometimes be funny. He was my least favorite bit. Oh, Oh, actually, both the bad guys were pretty bad. Oh, my God. This is uncomfortable. Yeah. (laughs) Yikes. Okay, it's okay. I'm going to change the topic. (laughs) What I find really interesting, and talking about the Schumacher approach to try to re-embrace what happened with the 1960s Batman, is that when Tim Burton first took over the films, the idea was to reject as much as possible from it. Yeah. Now, you were talking about being a big fan of the Wonder Woman TV show, and I thought the movie recently was quite interesting in that this is the first big screen adaptation of Wonder Woman we've seen, but they didn't really reject the 60s uh, sorry, the 70s TV show, and said they actually embraced quite a fair bit of it. A lot of the relationship between Steve Trevor and Diana was retained for this. Uh, there was the sort of, it was a different war they went to, but like that was still kind of part of the yeah. backstory. Like it really just felt like they were embracing that. And I wanted to maybe take, take it to you as a artist who's been on Wonder Woman. Were you really sort of conscious thinking about the original TV show and actually embracing that as part of the artistic sort of visual stylings? Was that ever a consideration or was it really just you approaching the story on its own terms? Yeah, uh, yeah. look, I, I think the original TV show, which isn't actually the original TV show, there was a Kathy Lee Crosby sort of telemovie that was meant to be a pilot. Did that ever actually get broadcast? It did get broadcast and it was appalling. <laughs> it's really, really not good. You can see parts of it on and YouTube. It was, yeah, and a year and a half later they sort of recreated for the new adventures of Wonder Woman, which is the Linda Carter series that we all know. And that was actually quite a faithful adaptation of the comic book. So Mm. 
while I feel like, yes, the film and the TV series have quite a lot in common, I feel like what it is that they have in common is that they've paid attention to the key elements of the character and the key elements of the source material that have actually made the character work when she works, you know. I I feel like when the character doesn't work is when various people try to reimagine and re-justify Wonder Woman and I feel like they, they tend to miss the mark. But I think one of the nicest things that Patty Jenkins said, you know, I think one of the key ingredients was that cheesy was a word that was not allowed to be said while she was working on that film because... You know, the original TV series, especially that first season that was set in in World War II, it was cheesy as hell, but that cheesiness was charming. It was incredibly charming and it was really well cast and it was quite a lot of fun and the stories were reasonably sophisticated. And I feel like what the film did was pay attention to the same key ingredients that that first season of the TV series paid attention to as well. Because, you know, kind of since the 80s, Steve Trevor hasn't been Wonder Woman's love interest. Mm. He's kind of been the the most hard done by primary support character in all of comics. Lois Lane has fared incredibly well in her nearly 80 years of existence. And Steve Trevor has fared kind of pretty badly. And it's really only been in the last few years that the comics have tried to sort of get him back into being her love interest because, you know, it's like if he's not the love interest, then who the hell is? And there was a window of time there where it was Superman and I find that a little gross because they're like they're like best friends who are a little too close to brother and sister for me to feel comfortable with them hooking up. And what it feels you, like a betrayal to Lois as well. And it well. feels like a betrayal to Lois. I don't, And I really don't want Diana being anyone's sloppy seconds, you know. Yeah. It's like, that's gross. <laughs> well, what do you mean he was, he's been hard done by? Well... During Wonder Woman's first few years in existence when she was sort of fighting Nazis in World War II, you know, Steve Trevor required a little bit of saving, but he was an action hero on his own. And then when the war was over and comics stopped being about fighting a version of a real bad guy or, you know, a real bad agenda, that's when they started sort of getting pretty goofy And during that time, the comics code kind of got a little insane and a lot of that had to do with Batman and Robin and all the gay subtext there Mm. and with Wonder Woman and all the lesbian subtext there. Wonder Woman started sort of becoming a romance book. Lois sort of had all of her agency stripped away. You know, she wasn't then a fast-talking, you know, savvy reporter. She just became obsessed with getting Superman to marry her. And Diana sort of became a little bit the same having, through the 40s, having rejected Steve's proposals of marriage over and over again because she's like, I'll marry you when all evil has been defeated kind of thing, you know. Um, I don't think she was really that interested in him. That sounds like a cop-out well, line. Well, no, she really liked him, you know, and I, I feel like the the TV series got a little bit close to that but then knew that they couldn't actually have them hook up because that becomes a different kind of show. And I feel like the film actually handled it really beautifully. They allowed them to be romantic with each other without the romance ever becoming the focus focus of their relationship. And in fact, it was quite refreshing, especially as a female audience member, for them to have a sexual experience and then the next day they're straight back to their, you know, fighting agenda and nothing's changed between them. You know, there's no awkwardness between them. They're just like, okay, back to the goal. 
Yeah. I find that pretty, pretty fun. Now, you've worked on the Wonder Woman books. Are you keen on working on, say, Batman or something a bit more Batman-focused? quite a bit of Batman. You know, he's sort of guest starred in a Never lot on, of like, a main title, though. Like, it's always been the ancillary sort of Batman books. Yeah. I feel like I've got more to bring to, like, the Batman support cast than I have to bring to Batman. Batman's one of those characters that has had so many writers and so many artists bring fresh stuff to the table. And while he is absolutely one of my all-time favourite characters, kind of emotionally, because he was one of the first superheroes I became aware of, I feel like I don't have a lot of fresh material to bring to that character, but I do feel like I've got a lot of fresh material to bring to Dick Grayson. I've got a lot of fresh material to bring to, you know, Tim Drake, who was Robin for a little while. Um, I've done quite a bit of work with uh, Damian Wayne, who's the current Robin. And um, Batman's son. And Batman's son, Bruce Wayne's son. I feel like I've got to bring to the Batman universe, the Batman family, but not necessarily a lot new to bring to Batman himself. And I feel like the the stuff that I did have has kind of been used up. So th- there was a book that I was doing for a couple of years called Earth 2 that started with... it's uh, Earth 2 is like the sort of parallel universe to the primary DC universe. And in our first issue, Batman, Superman and Wonder Woman are fighting... Uh, Steppenwolf and Apocalypse, which is kind of what the Justice League movie coming out later this year is all about. It's them fighting Apocalypse and Steppenwolf and saving the day, but in the process all three of them die. Um, oh, and a, and then about the – yeah, sorry. <laughs> it's in the first issue. Okay. Um, and, <laughs> it's been a while. And the, really the story is about the heroes that kind of come up in their place and, and sort of are sucked up into the vacuum created by their absence. But there is a version of Batman that comes back during that and it is Thomas Wayne, Bruce Wayne's dad, and he's sort of on the venom potion that Bane usually takes to roid up. He's on a version of that because he's not as skilled, he's not a detective, he hasn't trained his whole life to be this incredible crime-fighting machine. He's a bit of a prick who's got access to the toys because he, you know, made his way into the cave and has access to, you know, a, a version of the Venom Potion. And so he's become this real beast. And I got to sort of design and draw him for quite a bit. And that was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. And sort of during our original Batman that died in the first issue, creating him and designing him was quite a bit of fun. And I got to design a Batman black and white statue, which is like one of their premium sort of collector lines, is black, Batman black and white. And you know, any sort of major creator that gets a, a moment of designing a new character or, or, or a new version of, of Batman, uh, they can get an opportunity to design a Batman black and white. And I was the first female creator to design one. That's which awesome. Which a lot of fun. So who's your Batman? Who's the one that you connect with the most? Out of all of the screen Batmans? When you think about Batman, who do you think of? Lego Batman... Batman was so fun. I just saw that on the plane. Um, It's generally a bit of a toss-up between Adam West and Christian Bale. All right. Though I found the Burton Batman films, I liked Batman Returns more than I liked Batman. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, those movies are so choppy. I find them quite disconcerting narratively. But I think I, I loved the Penguin and the Catwoman way more than I liked um, Jack Nicholson as the Joker. I just found it a, a lot more fun. 
I quite like Val Kilmer actually as Batman. He's he's naturally eccentric enough to pull that character off. Poor George Clooney was just Poor so wrong. George Clooney. Poor George. <laughs> yeah, let's all feel sorry for George. <laughs> but then I feel like I know this might not be popular. I actually quite like Ben Affleck's version of Batman. I don't think the film is great. I think the film is weird and a hot mess. And, you know, thankfully that sort of extended director's cut made quite a bit more narrative sense, but both characters, both Superman and Batman, have a very strange agenda for most of the film. But I like the look of it. I I think he does a really good job as Bruce Wayne. I'm very intrigued to see where that goes. I have my fingers crossed that it can only get better. What are your what are your expectations for Justice League? The movie? Well, like with the Wonder Woman film, I have my fingers crossed. Certainly a lot of the the stuff that I know about the film has me pretty happy. But again, you can see great trailers and have all the right information there. It's really just the execution. And it will certainly be interesting as it's going to essentially have two directors with with Zack Snyder and then Joss Whedon. We'll see. I have my fingers crossed. I I think it could be... Optimistic? Very good. I'm optimistic. Cautiously optimistic. I'm hoping for a glorious hot mess. If it's a hot mess, I really hope it's really amazingly, gloriously messy Um, because it's got to be entertaining one way or another. And I do actually have high hopes for the new Batman series of films. Um, I do hope that Ben Affleck sticks around for them because I'm really intrigued to see what he can do and I like the... Um, the new director, what's his Matt name? Reeves. Matt, Matt Reeves. Thank you. I like the way his, I like his fighting style. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The 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 fight scene in the warehouse. Yeah, it's great. It's pretty brutal, but it was also quite extraordinary. Yeah. And I don't mind that kind of brutality when he's facing, you know, a couple of dozen guys with weapons. Yeah. It's like you've really got to fight hard. <laughs> yes. And he did. And, you know, I found that I found that scene extraordinary. And it, I think that's my problem with the film is that it doesn't actually become a superhero film until like the last part of the third act. Right. You know, it doesn't really feel like a superhero film until Wonder Woman arrives and suddenly superhero music starts and it's all of this sort of depressing, dire shit that's been going on up until that point, which is, you know, you're already at the almost two and a half hour mark and it's exhausting. Yeah, it's all politics and... Yeah, uh, oh, Jesus. It's, really it's like, draining. cheer up, Superman, for the love of God. <laughs> cheer up. But yeah, it gets it gets a little fun. Now, I also love the brutality, but I'd only really like to see Batman as hacking henchmen like Nippy, Chill and Mo. I mean, particularly Mo. No one likes that guy. We usually wrap up this podcast with just a bit of a reflection back as to what we've learned from this week's Batman. Were there any lessons? And Nick, I'll give you just a moment to think through just your emotional experience with this Batman. Uh, Nick, was there one moment that you really came away from, one lesson? Well, I learned a couple of things. As discussed, if you are hanging out with some famous baseball players and you need to get out of there, make up a creepy double date. That's mm-hmm. one thing. Works every time. And the second thing is I learned, finally learned what baked Alaska is. Oh, there you are, boys. You're just in time for the dessert. Gabrielle, bring it in. <laughs> baked Alaska. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I've heard, I knew, I was aware of it culturally, but I never uh, bothered to find out what it is. But it's, it's cake and ice cream with meringue on top of it. On fire. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and it's very easy to slip on. 
because Robin uh, could have had Mr. Freeze and he blew it. He slipped on the bag to Alaska. God bless Robin. Yeah. I learned a couple of things. I learned that you can run from central Gotham City to the snowy Alps in, you know, <laughs> maybe maybe an hour and a half. <laughs> um, and I learned that if you're going to be fighting multiple uh, Dr. Freezes, uh, Mr. Freezes and multiple Batmans, that maybe you should look for the, the Mr. Freeze surrounded by henchmen. And maybe that's the right Mr. Freeze. <laughs> that is good lessons to take on. Now, I learned that Adam West, when he slicks his hair back in a certain way, looks a bit like Jude Law. He Not does. Sure if anyone noticed this. Yeah. Good call. Yeah. Yeah. It's very prominent in this episode. Yeah, great. Yeah. Very handsome. Anyway, guys, thank you very much. Nicola, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you for having me. I do want to re-emphasize, people should check out a book that Nicola did with Greg Rucker, who's the gentleman she was working with on the Wonder Woman books. It's called Black Magic. It's their own creator-owned book. It's really good. I think people need to check this book out. Thank um, you very much. Can, can I make a plug as well? Uh, no, you're not allowed to. Right. Okay, Nick, what do you got? I wanted to plug your drawing of Charlize Theron as uh, James Bond. Oh, you saw that? I thought it was great. <laughs> yeah, thanks. That, that was, was pretty fun to do. Cool. Have you seen Atomic Blonde? Uh, yeah, I just saw it. That's one sequence in there. Oh, that, that, yeah, that was really impressive. Now, I'm sure Amazing. there were quite a few edits in there. Yes. But most of them were seamless, especially during the fighting in the building. That is worth seeing the movie for. That, Absolutely. Just that, five that was minutes. extraordinary. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, Nicola, you are on Twitter. How do people find you? Uh, I am at Nicola Scott Art on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Fantastic. Nick, you're on the Twitters, right? I love Twitter so much. Everyone's so nice. And so friendly. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's a great place yeah, to be. you go there and make a lot of friends. Um, Nick recently wrote a great article about how Spider-Man should be black. He received nothing but very friendly compliments. Oh, everyone was so sweet about it. Oh, really? Just really yeah. wanted to answer a dialogue <laughs> and just yeah. talk about how... Have a conversation. Yeah, yeah. It was amazing. No white nationalists. Sure. I'm was... sure they all had homework to do and chores. Because <laughs> right. they're all 12, right? I'm at, at Nick Bassine. And people can find me at the Dan Barrett. Thank you very much for listening to Batman Land. We'll be back next week with maybe the greatest Batman villain, Zelda the Great. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Do your research on that one, people. Uh, we'll be back next time. Thank you very much. Subscribe to the podcast. Leave reviews. Helps people find the show. Like one big happy family, huh?